gotta do what I gotta do. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number eight of the MMA Rundown. My name is Ben Gordon. I'll be your host as per usual. Uh, this week, we had a lot of stuff going on. Uh, a lot of what we will be covering here is the UFC on Fox event from over the weekend and also looking at looking ahead to UFC Nashville. Uh, there was also a pretty big ADCC trial event. Um, a few big names from MMA were involved in there, but I'll be going over that as well. And also looking at what happened with Dylan Dennis at the Marcelo Garcia Academy and all the other usual stuff. So to get started, we'll talk about Mighty Mouse and his win over Wilson Hayes. So coming into this fight, I had predicted that Mighty Mouse would win. That's not a bold prediction by any standpoint, not a hot take. Obviously, he did win. No big surprise there. Uh, but when I was talking about this fight, I was saying that for Wilson Hayes to win, he'd have trouble getting Mighty Mouse down. But if he got him down, he'd have to kind of keep him there for a little while and be able to work from there. Um, a couple points he was able to sort of I guess depending on what ruling you're going by, you could say he got a takedown, but it was never any control. He couldn't even hold Mighty Mouse down for three seconds, so he never really was able to work from the top. Had a couple chances to work from bottom, but really didn't do much from there. But with that being said, Wilson Hayes is a highly accomplished grappler. He's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion. And for Mighty Mouse to win the way he did is a humongous statement. Um, with that being said... I think it's important to make a big distinction here. So I think a lot of fans, especially if you're a little bit more casual, you may get the idea that with Mighty Mouse winning by submission, that this shows how great of a grappler Mighty Mouse is and that he's even, an even better grappler than Wilson Hayes is. Don't, don't fall for that. That's not the case. Wilson Hayes is still a superior grappler to Mighty Mouse. The fact that Mighty Mouse won by submission doesn't change that. It's important to kind of note how the submission came. At, at that point in the fight, Wilson had kind of given up. And it's also important to note you know, you always hear the thing where you, you punch a black belt once, it becomes a brown belt. You punch him another time, it becomes a purple belt. That that was in play to an extent. Um, Wilson really didn't look all that active on the ground. He's looked a lot better in actual grappling matches than he did in, in that fight. And it, it's kind of weird how even when the armbar was applied, he really wasn't like going out of his way to defend that much either. Like He really wasn't all that active. It looked like he was kind of content to be done. Usually you see that with a lot of rear naked chokes. It seems as though most rear naked chokes that you'll see that finish a fight, it's not as though the guy who finishes with a rear naked choke was just so slick and he just stuck it in there and got the got the finish. That does happen. Uh, you'll see that a lot with Damian Maia and some of the other top jiu-jitsu guys where if they get a guy down early, they're able to kind of slip it in. But a lot of times it's after the guy's been getting beaten up a lot or he's in a bad position where he's getting beaten up and he, he kind of realizes, hey, I'm kind of fucked here. I'm either going to get submitted or I'm going to have to get knocked out here. I'd probably rather just get choked out and be able to tap. So they kind of give it up and they give the choke up easy. In a way, this was kind of like that with the arm where Wilson, you can kind of tell he was done with, done with that fight. He was ready to get out of there and Mighty Mouse was able to get to mount past his guard rather surprisingly easy. Um, no knock on Mighty Mouse's technique was really good in there, but even with the arm bar, like there were some technical adjustments he could definitely make on the finish. He was initially crossing his legs. Um, a little loose when he swung over, but even still, I mean, good job on his part. He he sensed that the finish was there. He went for it. Um, pretty bold strategy. Now, granted, it was at the end of the round to go for the armbar, because a lot of times when you take the armbar from mount, there are a lot of um, people in jiu-jitsu who feel like that's a submission you really shouldn't go for, because if you miss it, then all of a sudden you're going from a great position mount to be ending up on your back. And especially with a guy like Wilson Hayes, you don't want him to be on top of you. So to take that kind of a risk is I mean it's a great sign for Mighty Mouse. He's he's hit that armbar before in other fights. I know he hit John Mar he got John Moraga with it. I feel like he may have hit it in another fight too, but 
to go for that on a guy like Wilson, to take that kind of chance, even with there being probably about 30 seconds left in the round, that shows a lot on uh, Mighty Mouse's side, and I feel like that's not being commended as much as it should be. And also, since Wilson's a guy who even hardcore fans aren't exactly sure who he is, I feel like the fact that Mighty Mouse submitted him isn't being given the play that it should be. But huge win for him. A lot of people right now are talking about whether or not this means that Mighty Mouse is the greatest of all time. And to me, the greatest of all time debate is probably the most annoying debate in all of sports because it ends up becoming a thing where people stop arguing who the more skilled or better technical fighter is or the better technical athlete is, and they just kind of make it who is the most accomplished instead of who's the best. And you hear this a lot with uh, basketball where when you're looking at Jordan versus Kobe or even Jordan versus LeBron, everyone's always talking about six rings, six rings. Who's Jordan's got six championships. This guy doesn't have as many championships. Therefore, Jordan's better. And it's like if you're actually going to debate Jordan versus LeBron, you should probably be talking about uh, who's the better defender, who's the better dribbler, who's got a better jump shot, uh, who's better at getting to, the, getting to the rim. Like Those are the kinds of things you have to argue about, not exactly how many rings they have. And I think that should really be how the MMA debate goes, too. It shouldn't be... Well, Anderson had 10 straight title defenses, and this guy had this many title defenses, and this guy won this many title fights. Like, it shouldn't be about how many title fights you won. It should be more about, like, skill for skill and base it off of that. And when you look at it that way, I mean, it's hard not to say that DJ's the guy. I think if you're going to make an argument against DJ, you have to look at the fact that DJ's had some losses prior to his long run. He lost to Brad Pickett. Uh, even a couple of his wins were... He lost to Dominic Cruz, obviously, but even a couple of the wins weren't exactly all that impressive. He beat Miguel Torres in a fight that I would have to... Uh, you'd probably have to score for Miguel Torres, but the judges didn't, so he got away with a win there. Uh, he had the loss to Brad Pickett. He lost... Or he ended up having a draw with Ian McCall in one of those tournament fights, but it appeared as though McCall had won that fight, too. Uh, but when they rematched, Johnson made clear that he was the better fighter from that point forward. And I'd have to say today, McCall still loses that fight if they do it again. But it, even at the time, it was still a tough win for him. So if you're looking at him today, as far as whether Mighty Mouse is the best, I have a hard time saying yes definitively because Cruz has only lost since the time he beat Mighty Mouse was to... Um, it was to Cody Garbrandt, but again, if Cruz and Mighty Mouse fight today, if we're going skill for skill, it's almost, I feel like it'd still be hard to say that Cruz loses that fight. You, Mighty Mouse has gotten a lot better since then, but Cruz was pretty pretty controlling in that fight, so for Mighty Mouse to jump all the way up there while Cruz is still improving in his own right, it's tough to say that he wins that fight. But if you if you have to say, if it's not Mighty Mouse, who is it? Anderson's a tough guy to say no to. Now, with Anderson now, he's fighting into his late 30s, early 40s, so we're seeing a lesser version of Anderson. I feel like that's clouding people's judgments, but the Anderson that was champion, the Anderson that was just tearing everybody up on the feet, the Anderson that wouldn't get on his back, he still managed to be able to find some missions and be able to work from there and still get his offense going. Even if he was getting beat on for four rounds against Chael, he still found the triangle. Um, he got taken down by Dan Henderson, was still able to kind of fight through that and ended up finishing him by submission. Triangle Travis Luter, which is kind of a similar situation to Mighty Mouse try or Mighty Mouse finishing Wilson Hayes in that Luter is a better pure grappler than Silva, but Silva caught him in submission. Uh, same type of thing here where Hayes is a better pure grappler than Mighty Mouse, but Mighty Mouse caught him, but still impressive nonetheless. So if you look at what Prime Anderson Silva was doing versus what Mighty Mouse in his prime right now is doing, it's... 
I think it's more visually impressive what Anderson did. But skill for skill, I think if you kind of make like a 185 version of Mighty Mouse, which is kind of unfair because a 185 person isn't going to be able to move like him. But if you look at the really strong wrestling background, uh, really active footwork on the feet, um, good boxing, kicks are okay, um, ever-improving grappling, good passing game, able to finish. Uh, you, you could definitely make a case that a 185-pound Mighty Mouse of today probably beats a 185-pound Anderson Silva in his heyday. So if you're going to make the argument that Mighty Mouse is the best, please, please at least make it like based on skill instead of just, oh, well, now that he's hit 10 championships, don't make it as though like the Mighty Mouse who waited on Friday with the nine straight championship defenses wasn't the greatest of all time, but the Mighty Mouse who walked out of the cage with 10 straight was because it's not like he got significantly better over the course of a day. So if you're going to argue it, at least argue it based on skill. But if you're going to make the skill argument, there really is an argument to make that he is the greatest of all time. In the co-main event between Thug Rose, Nama Yunus, and the karate hottie Michelle Watterson, uh, Nama Yunus did surprisingly well to me. I thought that this was going to be a fight where both of them were pretty similar in skill set, both on the feet and on the ground. Um, but Rose was able to do a lot better than I expected when this fight just got going. So it started off, they kind of had a couple decent exchanges on the feet. Watterson caught her in a head and arm throw, but wasn't completely secure with it. So as she was getting to the ground, Nami Yunus, before Nami Yunus even hit the ground, she knew she was going down. So she was making some adjustments so she can kind of get behind uh, Michelle Watterson, was able to do so, got a hook in and just eventually was able to squirm her way to the back. And then from there, I mean, had a lot of attempts from the back, but once she got it back on top, uh, even with Watterson looking for some, some submissions from her guard, she wasn't able to do much. And Nami Yunus not only controlled her, but was able to land a lot of really good ground and pound. Uh, second round starts uh, fairly similar. Um, they're going back and forth on the feet. Nami Yunus lands a huge head kick. And then from there, it's just able to keep going after Watterson on the ground. Lands a lot of other really strong ground and pound. And before you know it, has her in a rear naked choke and... It was almost reminiscent of the Damian Maya versus Rick Story fight in a way where when the choke was first on, you can kind of see some blood squirting out of uh, Michelle Watterson's nose, but eventually she tapped and Nami Yunus got the finish, and it sounds as though she will be getting the next title shot, whether that's going to be against um, Jessica Andrade or Joanna Janjacek. And as far as whether or not I believe that, I mean, it's tough to say. I, I think Joanna should win the fight, and if Joanna is still the champion, then Rose should get the title shot. But if Andrade wins, I think Joanna's probably still in a position now where she's had the belt long enough that unless it's just a devastating loss and she needs time to recover like from injury or whether it's kind of like your Ronda Rousey situation where she just wants to walk away, you, you kind of have to do that rematch. But I, either way, really big win for Rose. She's shown a lot of improvements in her game. I think there's still, still some room to tighten, st tighten some stuff up, but you can definitely tell that she's getting better every time she fights. And whether or not she's ready for Ioana at this point, I would say no. I don't know that her takedowns are to the point where she's going to be able to get Ioana down. And if she has to fight stand-up only versus Ioana, I mean, she can have her moment. She definitely, I mean, obviously she kicks hard and she's pretty good about using her range. But Ioana is just at a different level there. So if it ends up having to be a five-round fight on the feet, as much as she's improved, I don't think she's quite ready to, to win the title against Ioana. But either way, big win for her. As far as Michelle Watterson goes... Uh, you'd probably still have to say she's the best 105-pound fighter in the world. 
at um in the women's divisions, but it's tough to take a loss like that to a girl like Rose Namajunas. I I don't know that it really diminishes Waterson anymore. I think you still have to consider her top five, if not right around the top five, top six even. She's still one of the best fighters in that division. You figure the more she trains, the better her technique gets, the better off she'll be too. I mean, she's, she's going to be a lot of trouble for a lot of girls in that division. And just the more she can clean her game up, the the better off she'll be. But hopefully if the UFC um, institutes a 125-pound division at some point soon, and Dana keeps saying no, but again, with the way that WME has been, the way that they've been trying to throw belts at everybody, it doesn't make sense for them not to have an actual belt at 125. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that in the next year or two. And at that point, if some of the top contenders move out, you could see Waterson slipping back into the title picture, maybe even getting a title shot at some point in the next couple of years. And what's viewed as probably the biggest upset of the night, Robert Whitaker was able to defeat Jacare Souza in the second round by TKO. And this was a, another fight with Jacare where you kind of figure it's the same as usual, where if the guy for the guy who's fighting him, you kind of have to keep him off. You, you have to avoid the pressure. And if he gets you down, I mean, you're kind of screwed. Figured that'd be the same for this fight. When I was predicting it, I just assumed Jacare would be able to pressure him, get him up against the fence, clinch up with him, take him down, and then just work his work his passing system, get to a get to a finishing position, and then get a submission from there. And early on, it kind of seemed as though that was the way this fight was going to go. Uh, one of the things that was most shocking to me was the difference in speed between Whitaker and Jacare. Jacare does like to load up on his shots, but it really felt like any time he'd throw a punch, it was significantly slower than any time Robert Whitaker did. And as the fight wore on, that just became even more obvious and more glaringly, glaringly apparent. But in the first round, Jacare was able to clinch up with him, uh, was working his takedowns, was able to get him down, and actually even got his back at a point. And you'd feel like with most people, if Jacare's got your back, you're just kind of turtling up and hiding and just kind of keeping your elbows in tight. Uh, Whitaker didn't do that. He defended it like it was any other person who took his back. Was able to get Jacare off of him. Jacare was a little bit too high on his back, so he kind of slid off over the top. Whitaker got away, and from there... I mean, he was really good at keeping the distance. Anytime Jacare would wind up on a punch or something, he'd, he'd be out of the way. He wouldn't get hit, uh, wouldn't get clinched up with, and he'd be landing his own shots. Had a few really good shots towards the end of the first round, and then come second round, just more of the same. Jacare was pretty similar to what he looked like in the first, but only more tired, which made him even less effective than he was in the first, and he wasn't particularly effective then either. And in the process, um, Whitaker caught him a couple times, dropped him a couple times, and... After the last time he dropped him, uh, got in his guard and landed a bunch of other hard shots. And then it looked as though the fight was just about ready to be stopped there. And then as he was passing Jacare's guard, Jacare turtled up. And it was pretty obvious that if Yamasaki didn't step in right there, that Jacare was just going to get pounded out until he did. So I have no issue with the stoppage. And Jacare didn't appear to have an issue with it either, which which is good. You wouldn't want to see him. Whether or not that stoppage was right or not, you don't want to see him debating and having people feel like someone got cheated there. Nobody got cheated. Robert Whitaker earned that win. And for him, in, in a way, it's big for him. But in another way, we're still in this crowded middleweight division where Bisping wants to fight a formerly retired welterweight. And you've got Yoel Romero sitting around waiting. Uh, Luke Rockhold was going to fight Anderson Silva, but it doesn't sound as though Silva wants that fight. And, I mean, if you're looking at the other top guys, I mean, for Whitaker... Maybe you try to get a fight with Rockhold in the meantime because he didn't want to take the other fight. Maybe you try to get a fight with Anderson Silva. I don't know that Silva takes the fight with Whitaker, but it didn't seem as though he took a whole lot of damage. And 
if you're Robert Whitaker, maybe you can kind of leverage the fact that you just beat a Brazilian hero and use that to get a lot of heat and see if you can draw Anderson Silva into taking a fight with you. But it's not like this win puts him into a title shot necessarily. That's what he called for after the fight. But if we're being realistic, I don't see Whitaker getting that fight really for quite a while. He's going to have to fight again before he gets that fight because Joel Romero is ahead of him in line. And at the very least, he'd have to fight Joel if he's not... If you like, if Yoel's next fight is going to be for the title, it'd be against a guy like Luke Rockhold or it'd be against a guy like Whitaker. But I don't see Whitaker jumping ahead of either of those two. As far as things go for Jacare, just before the fight, he signed an eight-fight extension with the UFC, so he'll be around for quite a while. It's not like this fight's going to take him too far out. He's still an elite middleweight, so in his next fight, they're either going to put him against another elite middleweight and he'll have a chance to prove that he still belongs in the top. Or they'll put him against someone who isn't quite at his level and he'll probably just run through him and remind people, yeah, I still belong at the top. Uh, it's a little concerning for him. I think it's really upsetting both for him and his fans to know that he had such a great run over the past few years and for him never to have gotten a title shot in the UFC despite that. It's really unfortunate, especially when you see the difference in speed between him and Robert Whitaker. You almost wonder if he's getting to the point where age is starting to catch up with him. He's never been the guy with the fastest hands, but when you see a fight like that where there's such a disparage or such a disparity, you have to wonder if he's gotten slower than he has in the past, and if that's the case, where does that leave him? Where does how does he match up against some of the top fighters? With that being the case, um, obviously he lost the first fight he had with Luke Rockhold. You'd have to think that if they run that one back again, the the more time it takes between then and now, the more trouble he's going to have in being able to get over the hump and get that win. And be able to get that one back. Uh, for the next fight that you put him in, do you put him in against a guy like Chris Weidman? That seems to be the fight that makes the most sense division-wise, but it doesn't make sense for Chris Weidman. And really, you'd hope that if Gegard Mousasi gets re-signed, then they do a rematch there. Because again, that was a really, really poorly decided fight. It was a fight where Weidman had won the first round. It was a competitive second round. And in theory, if Weidman is able to close out that wrong, round strong, and even if he doesn't do great in the third... It's still two rounds to one, and he possibly gets the win there. So for Weidman, it, it seems like the fight that makes most the most sense for him is either going to be a rematch with Musasi, or it's going to be a fight against someone who's towards the back end of the top 10, so Weidman gets a chance to get a win under his belt. Uh, if you're not going to give him that fight, if you're not giving Jacare that fight, I mean, it, it sucks because if Jacare wins this fight against Robert Whitaker there might be a case that you could really say, hey, look, you well, we know that we promised you the title shot, but you you barely won the first fight with Jacare. This middleweight division's clogged up. Let's run that fight back. And and now at this point, you, you can't do that. You can't give Jacare another title eliminator after he just got a loss. It's unfortunate because it, unlike a guy like Will Romero, Jacare was willing to fight, and that put him in this position now where he's fighting against a dangerous kid like Robert Whitaker, who's, who's no picnic. He's got the advantage on the feet. He's a guy who's going to give a lot of people problems on the feet. Outside of, well, really, actually, I'd say probably everyone in the division would have some trouble with Whitaker on the feet, even if they're a slightly better striker. Whitaker's just that dangerous. He's that quick with his hands. He hits that hard. Fight smart, well-conditioned. He's a tough guy to deal with, so for Jack Ray to take that fight, take it on relatively short notice, and to unfortunately have this setback, that sucks for him, but in, in, a, in a division where the top contenders weren't getting moved into title shots. There's still a chance that after he has a couple of fights, he might find himself right back where he was now. And at that point, the divisions move forward and he really didn't miss out on anything, but it's, it sucks to see him take a loss like this. And you'd hope that on his way back, if he's able to work his way back towards the top and 
into title contention that he finally does get that title shot that he's earned and maybe even is able to pick up a win and get that belt that maybe he deserved for quite a while. Looking at the rest of the card, um, as far as results go, in the first fight on the Fox event or on the Fox card, Hanato Moicano defeated Jeremy Stevens by split decision. Uh, this was a bit of a surprise with Stevens being a top five guy at featherweight and Moicano making his debut. Uh, wasn't the most exciting fight. Moicano fought on the outside a lot. He was circling around a lot, picking his shots. Stevens was having trouble landing his shots, having trouble pinning him up against the fence, really being able to do a whole lot to him. And Hinato was even able to land a couple takedowns there too. Uh, big big win for him, obviously. I think you, you went over a top five guy in your debut. You're obviously going to be looking at a, another top guy in his next fight. I think the fact that the fight wasn't as exciting as a lot of fans would have liked is going to limit Hanato's uh, options as far as who he's going to fight. I think if he wins this fight a lot more impressively, he probably gets a top 10 guy guaranteed. Uh, since it wasn't a terribly exciting fight, maybe they give him a guy who's in the 11 to 15 range or maybe even someone who's just outside of that. But still a big win for him. For Jeremy Stevens, he was a guy who was slowly inching his way towards the title shot. He even got himself to a point where he was fighting Frankie Edgar in a fight where if he gets the win, you know, arguably that puts him in the title picture. Um in a position for a title shot. If not, it probably puts him against a guy like Max Holloway next. And at that point, obviously Holloway's now the interim champ, but at that point you're, you're looking really good and you're looking at a belt. Now he's had a couple losses. He's starting to kind of fall into a bit of a no man's land type of situation for him. I don't know that. I don't know that even before this fight happened that you would have ever expected him to get to the belt, but with a loss like this to an unranked guy, even if Moicano shows to be the real deal, it's just another guy that's going to end up being in front of him in line, and that's not going to be good for Stevens. So hopefully for Stevens' case, if he's still looking to work his way into the title picture, and he's a really tough guy to deal with, uh, hopefully he's able to get a good win in his next fight. But I feel like if you're booking Stevens at this point, you're trying to book more for exciting fights than you are for title eliminators. So I don't know what Duho Choi is up to, but if you could just imagine those two going at it, that would be one hell of a fight. It's, I mean, the Cub Swanson one was good enough. You don't want to destroy too many of Duho Choi's brain cells, but as fans, we'd love to see that fight happen. Uh, the last fight on the Fox prelims, which it was kind of weird. They aired the Fox prelims, and then they aired the Fox card, so it was all on the same channel, but technically it was different programs. But the main on that event on that was a former Bellator champion, Alexander Volkov, defeating Roy Nelson by unanimous decision, 30-27 in all of them. Um, pretty clearly outstruck him throughout that fight. Used his length really well, was able to keep Nelson away from him at bay, was able to avoid the right hand, and that was enough to get him a victory, and it's a big one for him. Nelson, who is now outside of the top 15, you were hoping for his sake that he'd get a win here and kind of push himself back in, but this is only pushing him further down the rankings, and you wonder how long... He's going to be able to stick around. He's a fan favorite, so you don't think the UFC... I wouldn't imagine the UFC is in any rush to cut him, but for him to be looking... For him to be a guy who's always kind of been hovering on the top 10, and just when he gets his chance to work his way into the top 5, he'd lose, and he'd kind of fall back to the top 10 and kind of prove he's still a top 10 guy and then work his way back in, fall. Now it's now it's gone from he was working his way up, fell back, but now that fall has gone from falling right around the top 10 to top 12 area to falling outside the top 15, and now we're looking around the 20 area. So you wonder if Nelson's got another surge left in him or if we've seen his better, if we've seen his best days at this point. A uh, fight before that was a very highly touted prospect out of France, Tom Dukenwa versus Patrick Williams. Uh, Dukenwa, I've had a chance to look at some of his highlights from Bama. 
Very exciting fighter. Uh, his striking is obviously where he's at his best. Uh, really good leg kicks. Really, really good elbows. Um, his grappling. I mean, it's he, he's a very competent grappler. He's very positionally aware. It doesn't seem like he's the most technical guy, but he's definitely pretty good about understanding how to keep good hip control. And if he's got a guy hurt, he can definitely finish him on the ground. He's had some really good submissions, whether it's been triangles, rear naked chokes, so be it. But um, this fight started off with him having some trouble with Williams, but after just kind of settling in a bit, he just lit Williams up. At the end of the first round, it looked as though he probably could have been awarded a finish. They didn't. They let it go to a second round, and less than 30 seconds into the next round, he was able to finish Williams with his elbows, and it was pretty brutal. Great start for Duke and Juan. He's one of those guys where it'll be interesting to see how quickly they bring him along. If he tries to go the Conor McGregor route and just kind of call out guys that are well above him and work his way up or whether he just kind of lets the UFC pick and choose who he's going to fight and slowly build his way towards the top but great prospect at a lower weight uh, the next fight was Rashid Magomedov defeating Bobby Green by split decision Bobby Green's a guy who was hanging around the top 10 at lightweight and then ended up missing a lot of time I think there were some personal issues but also I think there were injury issues as well uh, I believe he had like one over Josh Thompson at a time when Thompson was a top 10 guy so he's a guy who's got a lot of upside, but it seems as though there have been a lot of personal issues there that have kind of halted his ability to train and continue to improve. Magomedov's no easy guy to deal with on his own right, and for this to be a split decision, with Magomedov being the guy who, if he's not in the top 15 now, I mean, he should be where his skill set's at. That's, that shows that Bobby Green's still tough. He can still hang with some of the best guys, but Magomedov was a little bit too much for him, and he got the victory there. Uh, fight of the night was Tim Elliott defeating Louis Smolko by unanimous decision. Uh, Smoke is now on a three-fight losing streak. Um, prior to that, when he was fighting Brandon Moreno, there was talk of him potentially being the next guy to fight Mighty Mouse. But since then, you know, Smoke is a very good grappler, but he's not exactly the most athletic grappler. And some of these guys who are quicker, really good wrestlers, really, really good control on top, they've been giving him a lot of problems. And Elliot was just more of the same. He wasn't fighting the same way that Ray Borg fought him, but was able to secure takedowns pretty much at will. Um... Really good at using his chokes, both to kind of use them for sweeps, but also to keep um, to keep Smoker from getting too good of a position on him. Uh, was able to pass Smoker's guard. There was a time where Smoker had what appeared to be a pretty good darts choke. I believe it was in the third round, but wasn't able to finish on him. Granted, beating a guy with his own move isn't exactly the easiest thing to do. A lot of times when you're training jiu-jitsu, if you get triangled a lot, the common thought would be ask what are good ways to defend the triangle, but the real way to learn how to defend a triangle is learn how to attack a triangle. Because you can ask someone how do you defend a triangle, they might tell you something that pops up in the back of their head, but when you actually learn how to attack a triangle, you see as the attacker what types of things can keep you from finishing, and you see what people are actually doing when they're actually presented with those submissions being used against them to defend it, so... Someone who's very good at a submission is generally going to be very good at defending that submission, and that seemed to be the case with Elliot too. He's pretty calm and composed and got out of it and was able to win 30-27 on all of the scorecards. Uh, on Fight Pass, in what was a bit of a surprising, not necessarily surprising that Aljamain Sterling won, but how he won, uh, he beat Augusto, Augusto Tonquino Mendez by unanimous decision, 29-28 on all three scorecards. What was interesting to me about this fight is I figured that Sterling would not grapple with Mendez, given that Mendez is a world champion. And he would just kind of try to use his striking, use his range, and work from there. Uh, Tanquinho was able to knock him down in the first round, and presumably that's the round that he won in the judges' scorecards. But after that, Aljamain had no issue taking him down, and 
granted he was careful when he got down. He definitely had to fight off some submission attempts, but he definitely held his own against a guy who is arguably the best in the world at that weight in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So very impressive win for Aljamain Sterling. It was not an easy matchup. The name might not be the biggest to hardcore MMA fans or just to casual MMA fans, but that not only the fact that Aljamain won, but the way he won was incredibly impressive. And I think it really cements that he is a top 10 guy still. Uh, Devin Clark fought Jake Collier. He beat him by unanimous decision. Anthony Smith came back against Andrew Sanchez. Uh, through what appeared to be intended as a head kick, but it landed with a knee and was able to finish Sanchez up against the fence after that with some punches. Zach Cummings choked out Nathan Coy with a guillotine choke. Um, it took the ref a little bit of extra time to stop that fight. Coy was out for a few seconds before the ref realized it, but for a few seconds, usually you're not going to be suffering too much damage, but you still don't want to see a guy being choked any longer than he needs to be. And Ketlin Vera defeated Ashley Evans-Smith by unanimous decision. In addition to UFC on Fox, there was also a really big Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu event out in uh, California. It was the ADCC West Coast Trials. It was headlined by four super fights featuring some of the biggest names in the game, but they also had um, a few different brackets for people to have a chance to qualify for ADCC. So just going top to bottom on the super fights, the main event was Bouchesha versus uh, Rafael Lovato Jr., a uh, really interesting matchup between the two of them. Bouchesha is a guy who he help, he trains out at AKA. Um, he's a checkmat guy. Um, he had a super fight with Hodger Gracie at, at Metamorphs at a time. Uh, he beat Hodger. Well, I think it ended up being a draw, but if it was scored on points, Bouchesha outgrappled him during that match. So he's topped the food chain. He went against uh, Rafael Lovato Jr., who is now in Bellator. Also another guy who's topped the food chain, but he's a little, a little smaller of a guy. And Bouchesha won that match. Uh, they also had Leandro Lowe, who was scheduled to fight against Braulio Estima. And during warm-ups, Estima got injured. Uh, surprisingly, with him being injured, you'd figure that match is completely dead. Uh, but the guy who stepped in is is no slouch himself. Gordon Ryan actually volunteered to step in on just absolute last-second notice and put on a heck of a match between him and Leandro Lowe. Uh, apparently he had said afterwards that he was kind of confused by the scoring system. There was a point in the match where he was actually up because of like the negative point scoring system they had, and he would have grappled differently. Either way, it was still a good match between the two of them, and Leandro Lowe got the win 4 nothing. but great showing for Gordon Ryan. Um, there was Cyborg Abreu versus Vinny Magalhaes. Uh, Cyborg won that match on points as well. And then in the other super fight, Bruno Frazado beat Gio Martinez, and he won that on points as well. So a lot of times when you have the top jiu-jitsu guys going at it between each other, the finishes aren't always so easy to come by. And in this case, none of them were able to get a finish against each other. But again, it's, these are some of the top guys in the world, and the matches themselves are very entertaining. At 99-plus kilograms, uh, the champion was Casey Hellenberg. Um, second place, her silver medal went to Jessa Ray Children, and third place went to Travis Clark. At 99, Paul Ardilla won first place. Nick Schrock finished second with silver medal, and Colin Hart finished third. At 88 kilograms, this is an interesting one for MMA. John Salter, who is, you may remember, was a UFC veteran. I believe at the time he was in the UFC, he was a purple belt. Uh, now he is fighting with Bellator. I think he fought with World Tier as a fighting as well. But he should be next in line for a title shot now with Carvalho beating Melvin Manhoof and Bellator. He won his division at 88 kilograms, and in doing so, he beat a couple of world champions on his way there. 
uh, including DJ Jackson, who finished second, and Josh Hinger, who has been just go-go plotting everybody on the regional scene. He went through uh, the Chicago Open, for example, and just was just hitting go-go plotters on black belts left and right. Uh, really impressive. He's a world champ on his own right, but Salter was able to get by him and got himself a first-place finish and a trip to Abu Dhabi. At 77 kilograms, Wagner Hosha and AJ Agazarman ended up having a rematch of what was one of the more ridiculous recent Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu super fights where Agazarm's a guy who just goes way overboard in the shit talking and not in the way where he's like getting too personal, but in the way where it's like it's obvious that he's trying to like do it to draw fans and it's kind of cringeworthy when he does it, but he just gets under a lot of guys' skin in the jiu-jitsu community and Wagner's one of those guys. And when they had a matchup fight to win, Wagner actually just like front kicked him off of the platform that they were grappling on and like into like a table. So they had a rematch here. Wagner got the victory. So AJ finished second, and John Satava had the bronze medal. At 66 kilograms, um, Ethan Krellenstein or Krellenstein won that round, or he won that um, division. Uh, second place was Ricky Lulu, and somewhat surprisingly, although not really surprisingly, you, you might say Nikki Ryan finished third. Uh, if it's surprising, it'd be that Nikki Ryan is still a teenager. I believe he's still going to high school. So for someone at his age to be doing so well meddling at a big event at black belt uh, shows a lot. There's a lot that he can do in this sport moving forward. And if he wants to get an MMA too, I mean, he's already got a fantastic Brazilian Jiu Jitsu base and a fantastic pedigree. So he's got a lot of upside and a lot of potential. There were only two divisions uh, for the woman. There was a 60 kilogram and above, and then there was under 60 and it was just 60 kilograms. So it's 60 or under uh, for the 60 plus Tara white finished first. Kendall Roosing finished second, and Michelle Dunches finished third. Uh, for 60 kilograms, this was another one that was kind of surprising where a young competitor just overperformed. Uh, Elizabeth Clay, who I believe is from Alaska, she's also a blue belt, ended up winning this division, beating Nicole Sullivan in the finals. Nicole is a purple belt from Indiana, from the Midwest. I've actually had a chance to train with her since I'm out of the Midwest. She's very good. So for someone like Elizabeth Clay, a, a blue belt to beat her, that, that says a lot. And it'll be interesting to see where she goes from here and kind of how she can work her way on, onto the scene. And then Heather Raftery finished third in that division. Coming up this weekend is US, UFC Nashville. This is going to be aired on Fox Sports 1. It's going to be the third event in three weeks for the UFC. Not really any fight on this card in particular that stands out as like a must-see fight if you're looking for like your typical main event where you kind of have like your two top five guys going at it. This fight's got a lot of interesting matchups, but none, none of these fights I, I'd really feel are just really main event worthy. To me, the fight that interests me most is going to be John Dodson versus Eddie Wineless. This is going to be two top ten guys at Bantamweight. But if we're going down the card from top to bottom and just kind of having a quick run through it, uh, the main event will be between Cub Swanson and Artem Lobov. I think here the most impressive thing is the fact that Artem Lobov was able to land this fight. He has no business fighting a guy like Cub Swanson right now. He's no business fighting a guy who's in the top 10 right now. And what Cub Swanson has said is true that if Artem Lobov was not Connor's training partner and if Connor didn't think so highly of him, he probably isn't even in the UFC. Lobov does not have a very impressive record at all, but he is here. Uh, he is talking well, and he is talking himself into some big fights. And if he can get a win here, that would be enormous for his career. If you're looking at this fight technically and breaking it down, there really isn't one area that you'd give Lobov the advantage. On the ground, Cub Swanson's much better. 
I believe Cub Swanson's still a better wrestler. If Cub wanted to take this fight to the ground and beat up Lobov, I'd imagine that he could. Um, and on the feet, Cub, though he's been susceptible to some hard shots on the feet before, he's still the better boxer in my eyes than Artem Lobov. And with that being said, though, Lobov is still a very good striker, and his striking is his best aspect. And if Cub gets lured into a striking matchup with Lobov, though I don't think Lobov wins, Lobov has a much better chance than if, the, if this becomes a grappling match, and I have a feeling that Cub's going to want to keep this fight on the feet. And if he does that, though you should be surprised if Lobov wins, you shouldn't be stunned if Lobov wins. But again, if we're picking this fight, if we're betting on this fight, you have to pick Cub Swanson. In the coming event, you have L.I. Quinta returning after a long layoff between, I believe there's some injury things, but also there were some issues with pay. He ended up just saying, okay, fine, well, this real estate thing isn't working out for me. I guess i got to come back. So for him, you always have to wonder what the long layoff's going to do. Diego Sanchez, not exactly the guy you want to fight after a long layoff because generally if you're going to have a an issue with adrenaline or you're having an adrenaline dump, fighting a guy who just keeps coming after you like Sanchez is not the ideal matchup. You'd imagine that if Ayakinta fights like he did in his last fight before the layoff, he should get the victory here, but I feel like that's going to be the biggest question there, and for that reason, I'm not going to put any money down on this. I'm not entirely sure who's going to win, but if the odds for Sanchez look favorable enough to you, this might be a chance to pick the upset. Uh, the next fight is Ovis St. Pru versus uh, Marcus Rogerio de Lima. Uh, St. Pru, up until the John Jones fight, was a guy who was kind of hanging around the top. He was sort of in the Jimmy Manoa territory, where he was just one really big win away from getting into the title picture, but wasn't able to get it. Lost to John Jones and has had some losses since. This should be a winnable fight for him, though it won't be an easy fight. Uh, then the next fight on the card is the one that I talked about as being my main event, John Dodson versus Eddie Wineland. This fight interests me in a lot of ways. Wineland's a guy where he's able to string together a couple wins here. He, he has like these little small little win streaks that he has, and he does it against really impressive guys, and he does it impressively. In this case, right now, he's on a two-fight win streak where he beat um, Frankie Signs by knockout, and then he beat... Um, Gosh, who was that guy who Dominic Cruz and Cody Garbrandt both beat? Mizugaki. He also knocked out Takeya Mizugaki. So he's going to be coming into this fight on a two-fight knockout win streak going against John Dotson. There's going to be a pretty distinct speed disadvantage here. Um, but with that being said, Eddie Wineland has a couple of training partners who are surprisingly effective at being able to mimic what John Dotson does. And to think that Wineland's going to come into this fight and not be able to handle the speed. I can tell you right now, I know otherwise, he can definitely handle Dotson's speed. That being said, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be an easy fight for him. Wineland has trouble against guys who kick well. Uh, Dotson can kick, although that's not necessarily his his best game. But this is a fight that I think is going to be a lot more competitive than you might think between a guy like John Dotson, who holds a win over TJ Dillashaw, and a guy like Eddie Wineland, who has got worked his way to a title shot, had a fight with Burrell, but isn't a guy who's normally thought of as like a top five perennial guy. Uh, the fight after that is Joe Lozon versus Stevie Ray. This just seems like it's an exciting fight waiting to happen. And then the main card is topped out by Jake Ellenberger and Mike Perry. Um, interesting that Perry would get a fight with Ellenberger after coming off a loss against Joe Ban. You figure he'd probably get pushed against someone who's a little bit easier, but these two have been drawing at it back and forth. They've had a little interview they did on Chael Sonnen's podcast with, um, I think it was the behind the fight one. 
where they were just going back and forth. It seems like an entertaining matchup. There seems to be some animosity there, but that's kind of Mike Perry in a nutshell. He has animosity with anyone he's fighting. Uh, and then on the prelims, the FS2 prelims, there's Talis Leitis versus Sam Alvey. Uh, kind of surprising to see Leitis buried in, on FS2, but this could be a really interesting fight. If he's able to get Alvey down, you'd imagine this is going to be a pretty typical Talis Leitis fight, but Alvey's always dangerous on the feet, so you never know. Uh, Dustin Ortiz versus Brandon Moreno. Moreno right now holds a top 10 ranking after having that win over Lewis Smolka and looking pretty good ever since then. Uh, with Smolka falling off, you have to wonder, are we jumping the gun on Moreno being a top 10 guy? But Ortiz will be a real test for him. Uh, Holtzman versus McBride you've got, and you've also got Jessica Penne versus Danielle Taylor. Uh, that fight, mm, it, it could be interesting. Taylor is very short, likes to throw heavy punches, but isn't exactly the most technical. Penne is the much more technical fighter. You'd probably imagine she gets the win there. Uh, you got Alexis Davis versus Cindy Dandois on the UFC Fight Pass prelims. Uh, Brian Barbarino versus Joe Proctor. And Hector Sandoval versus Matt Danger Schnell. So another week goes by, and O&O professional MMA fighter Dylan Dennis is in the news again. This time, though, probably not the way he wants to be. So in the past, it had been because of interviews that he'd given out. It had been because Bellator fighters had called him out. Uh, this time, it's his longtime coach, Marcelo Garcia, that's calling him out, and it's not in a positive light. So Garcia posted what was about a 15-minute video to Facebook. It was of him after the New York Open, IBJJF New York Open, just addressing his team and talking about how he feels it's a family and getting to the point eventually where he was saying that Dylan Dennis and Mancher Kara were going to... In his words, it was that he said he wanted them to take some time away and just kind of reassess and reset. But in reality, it's a suspension. So Dylan Danis right now is suspended from the Marcelo Garcia Academy, which is where he built himself up from. I don't remember whether he started as a white belt at Marcelo's or if he had like a blue belt and transferred over at that point. But either way, when he got to Marcelo Garcia's Academy versus where he's at now and what he's become, he has to attribute a lot of it to Marcelo and what he learned from there. And Marcel is a guy who's kind of like got that really humble attitude. And you could definitely tell that the way that Dylan acts and the way Marcelo act are two polar opposite things. And you, you heard it was getting under his skin, but obviously at this point it's, it's very clear it got under his skin and it got to the point where he was saying that at Mar or Marcelo was saying that at his house, he feels like that that's the home of his kids. That's the home of his wife, but his gym, that's, that's his personal home. And he felt like having to deal with all the stress and, all the other nonsense that Dylan Dance was bringing upon him, it ended up just getting to the point where he, he didn't want to have to deal with it anymore. So what makes this really interesting is that Dennis still is looking to compete at the Worlds in the Gi. So if he's not going to be training at Marcelo's, that's going to put him in a position where he either has to find another camp, whether he just goes to... Um, whether he works with Donahue's team or whether he decides to just move out to Ireland now and work at SPG and train with those guys, maybe train with Gutter Nelson in preparation. But it also means that prior, prior to this fight, one of the questions that was asked of him is if he does, when, once he does start fighting MMA, is he going to be fighting out of Marcelo's gym or is he going to be fighting out of SPG? And this might signal the beginning of him becoming a full-time SPG fighter. And in a way that could help him while he's in New York. Yes, he has different places he can go to train his boxing and train his wrestling. But if he can go to a, a full MMA camp like SBG, a very good MMA camp like SBG, and just start training there full-time, that could actually help his MMA, MMA career in the long term. 
I don't know whether or not he intends to try to make good with Marcelo, whether that's just saying, hey, look, Marcelo, thanks for the time, thanks for the help. I appreciate it. I'm sorry that things ended this way and let that be that, or whether he actually does try to kind of slow his roll and work his way back into Marcelo's good graces and even be able to train at the academy once again. I'm not entirely sure where that's going to go, but this isn't exactly the best news for him. It's not a good look for him, but if he's going for the bad boy image and he's ready to move on to Ireland and train with SPG full-time, maybe that's something that he can kind of use as an asset for him and kind of a story to be like, oh, I'm such a bad guy. I got kicked out of Marcelo's gym. Unlike my past promos of the week, this one isn't going to be just a video clip or an audio clip of a guy cutting a great promo on camera, whether it's a post-fight interview or whether it's just a regular interview with Ariel Hawani or somebody else. This is going to be a little bit more based on Twitter, and it's going to be based around this UFC Nashville event. So as I was mentioning before, Artem Lobov is a guy who's got around a 500 record in MMA. Uh, the fact that he is in the UFC is probably more of a matter of who he knows than what he knows, and by what he knows, it, I mean just his skill set and his accomplishments as a fighter. The fact that he's an SBG guy, the fact that he's close with Conor McGregor. I mean, if you watch the season of The Ultimate Fighter that Artem was on, um, you could tell that the fact that he was even in the elimination fights to begin with, with, it seemed as though that was because of his relationship with Conor, and that was something that Conor probably had to request for Conor to even be willing to be a coach on that season. Uh, Artem then lost his elimination fight and was still brought back anyway. Uh, you'd have to figure that Connor was a big reason for that. Uh, he he did show well in the house. He got himself into the finals, lost to Ryan Hall, but ever since then, he's had some okay-looking fights, but he talks about how he's the hardest-hitting guy at Featherweight now that connor has gone, but what he says and what he does are two different things, and you know maybe if you say something enough times, people will believe it to be true, but if you watch the fights, Artem's not the hardest-hitting guy at Featherweight, and one of the guys who hits harder than him is the guy he's going to be fighting in Cub Swanson. But the fact that he's fighting Cub Swanson to begin with is why I'm giving him promo of the week this week. Because for him to call out Cub Swanson, to get after him on Twitter, and to be able to lure him into a fight, it's something... I'm surprised that Cub Swanson would fall for it. I, I guess Cub's in a position where he probably doesn't see the title coming to him right away at this point. You've got guys like Holloway who've beaten him. Uh, Edgar's ahead of him. He's beaten him. Uh, so as far as the guys he'd have to he'd have to leapfrog to get to the title, there are guys that he's already been there been in there against and hasn't fared particularly well. So maybe at this point he's just like, all right, well it's an exciting fight. He ends up getting the main event, so that's a positive for Cub. But Artem, a, a guy whose big wins, I mean, with with Chris Avila, like is that is that ready for a step up against a guy like Cub Swanson? In, in no way in my mind is it. But he was able to talk. He was able to get underneath Cub's skin. And in doing so, and getting after him on the mic and getting after him on Twitter, he was able to pick a fight that if he wins is going to propel him so much faster than he otherwise would have. If if Artem kept his mouth shut and kept being the 12-10 and 10 fighter, whatever his record is now that he, he has been in the past, a top-10 fight would not be coming for him anytime soon. And that could be over a year from now, even if he picks, to, picks up two or three more wins in a row. He talked his way into a fight against a top 10 guy right now. He talked his way into a fight against a top 10 guy right now who may even be willing to fight him in his realm, which is stand-up. And if he's able to take advantage of that, if he's able to pull the upset, he's going to be so much further in his career than he otherwise would have been had he kept his mouth shut the entire time. And for that, he wins promo of the week for week for the week of 4-17-2017.